So this week we'll, um, we'll try to make sense of uh, common engineering acronyms and buzzwords with help of our special guest today, Natalie. Natalie works at Airbyte, focusing on building the user experience and overseeing analytics. Her experience, uh, expertise in scaling analytics teams and systems from the ground up. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we go into our main topic of understanding these uh, acronyms and buzzwords, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been in kind of startup tech for my entire career. Uh, I actually started out in the Bay Area at Box uh, doing marketing operations, uh, and then moved into marketing analytics uh, at a company called Avril. Uh, really went uh, deeper into analytics there, uh, learning R, SQL, bit Python, uh, and really ended up becoming an acquisition analyst. So looking at both marketing and sales and, and how they interacted. And so building out multi-touch attribution models and things like that. Uh, so after that, I moved a little bit more into operations at what called AppDynamics, uh, which ended up being acquired by Cisco, and then uh, moved to actually manage my own team at a company called Keep Trucking, uh, which was focused on uh, more of that IoT space, building out dash cams, uh, ELDs for trucking, the trucking industry. Uh, and so there I built out a team of about 11 analysts, all ranging from marketing and sales to uh, customer success and product. Uh, and then moved on to Harness, uh, doing a customer success ops role. So I've really kind of straddled that analytics and operations space. And now I'm in Airbyte doing growth analytics. Yeah, thanks. So what does Airbyte do? Yeah, so Airbyte is an extract and load or ELT uh, with the transform being the T uh, platform that essentially allows you to ingest a lot of different data from sources like uh, maybe APIs like AdWords or Facebook ads, or even data, uh, data warehouses uh, like Snowflake and bring them into your data warehouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned a few things, transform, ingest and ELT. And actually yeah. what we wanted to talk today about is, uh, actually this is a question I get sometimes, not super often, but this pops up. is like, what's the difference between ELT, ETL, all these acronyms, what they, actually mean and that's why we um, have a conversation today to finally um, figure out that and help everyone else with that. So let's start with ETL, so which is probably the oldest concept from data engineering. And I think it was yeah. used even before the term <laughs> data engineering existed. I think it's pretty old, like from coming from business intelligence uh, times or even older, I don't know. So what is ETL? Yeah, so ETL, exactly what they stand for is E is the extract, T is the transform, and L is the load. So when we think about ETL, we're really thinking about extracting is the source-specific kind of routines where you pull selected data out of an external system. Uh, the transform layer is kind of like your specific business logic. So your organization is going to have some sort of logic that really defines uh, maybe how you pull the data or certain use cases that you have that are operational. And then the loading piece is where you have uh, kind of destination specific routines to push data into a place where it's going to be consumed. Uh, and so that's kind of the traditional way you think about it. Can you think of an example? Like let's say, so there are some sources, right? So we extract data from these sources. We transform this data somehow and then put in a data warehouse, right? This is what you said. So can you think of an example, like uh, you mentioned something like Facebook ads or something like this? Yeah, so uh, generally you might see uh, if you're working in maybe the marketing space, mm -hmm. you'll be dealing with, uh, your, like your data is kind of stored in Google AdWords because you're running data uh, or you're running ads on Google or maybe same thing with Facebook. Uh, if you're working in sales, your data might be stored in Salesforce, your CRM. Uh, if you're working in finance, it might be stored in maybe NetSuite. And so all of these different uh, kind of API sources all house some data that your business needs to build some sort of picture of how the business is doing. And so that would those sources would be the places that we would extract from. Mm -hmm. And then, so we extract this from, let's say, uh, so your background is more marketing as I understood. So you would, uh, you would want to extract some things from Google AdWords, from Facebook, right? And then there is something interesting in this data that you want to then uh, do some transformation, right? So extract your call, 
Google AdWords, it returns you some data and then you want to transform this data, right? Yeah, exactly. So one really good use case that we could speak to here, uh, just to be a little bit more concrete, is what is your cost to acquire a customer and, and the acronym CAP? So in order to get to that, you need to know how many customers that you've actually acquired from, let's say, Google AdWords. And you also need to know how much is he actually being spent to acquire those customers. And the only way to really uh, concretely bridge those things uh, is to actually pull out data from your CRM, which stores all of your revenue information and also where they came from, and then also pull out the spend data from, from a more upper funnel source and then merge those together using that transform capability. Mm -hmm. And then everything eventually goes to a data warehouse, which you use for building reports. And then you see what is the, um, how much money you spent, right? And all this. Exactly. Yep. And so the way that you kind of finish out the process is once it's loaded in the data warehouse, then uh, in this traditional ETL model, you'd ha essentially have sort of like a, a data mart specifically saying, hey, this is the uh, data mart that answers that CAC question. And then you would have maybe a visualization tool like Looker or Superset in order to kind of show you from a visualization perspective, bring it out to the business so that they can actually consume the insights. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what is uh, ELT then? Why, like, why do we want to switch this too? Yeah, so I think the, the traditional way to think about this is a little bit just more inflexible. So, you know, business logic changes a lot of the time and uh, you're going to receive friction whenever you need to change part of this pipeline. So because you're transforming it before you load it into data warehouse, uh, it's actually difficult to actually bring in new data if let's say there's a new table or a new field that gets added to let's say Salesforce, uh, new data that you're collecting or a new data source, it's fairly inflexible to essentially just go ahead and, and add those things in. Uh, it often will actually force data to just completely be re-extracted completely, which is much more compute and much more time than, than really necessary for small changes like this. Uh, you also have this lack of autonomy. So what we've seen is generally these ELT tools are actually managed by engineering teams. And so when analysts who are working more so with the business have these needs, they actually have a dependency on an external team to actually go and complete those, which of course uh, creates more cycles. Uh, it's more time to, to really make these changes. And really the, the crux of it is it requires engineering to be actually involved. So, okay. yeah. yeah, so ELT guess, um, is, is really generalizing the E and the L. So instead of having the transform be in the middle there, ELT is the T is at the end. So instead of having a tool to actually manage the transformation for you, you're actually uh, bifurcating the EL and the T. So everything is loaded into your data warehouse and then the, transformi the transformation happens after uh, the data is loaded and it, the transformation actually happens within the data warehouse itself, the destination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we already have a comment about uh, transform. So uh, the question is, uh, can we, like, can we, like when you say transform, can you say, more to understand what is happening here. Like, can yeah. maybe like what kind of transformations do we uh, do we run? Yeah, yeah. So definitely can be more specific about that. So uh, it can go from the very basic, the, the most simple uh, transformation I can think of is something like uh, changing a a column type from a let's say a numeric to a character. So that's like the very basic transformation. It's it's almost like it's a casting of a column to a different data date type or data type. Uh, the more complex transformations generally will join across different data sources. And so you'll say, I want to grab uh, AdWords data and Salesforce data, uh, join them using some kind of unique identifier, and then figure out how to uh, kind of show these data sources alongside each other in some sort of finalized data model. So it, uh, generally, we think of these as kind of transformations that you're running in SQL. So these are, can be very simple SQL statements or pretty complex ones. Uh, but those are kind of the two uh, two ways that I see transformation being done. Mm -hmm. And when you swap uh, T and L, so T comes uh, at the end. So you said the reason for this is uh, when T is in the middle, in the ETL, it's not flexible, 
because business logic changes, right? And then you also depend on engineering teams. And I imagine, um, let's say, if the data we extract from the source, we don't need the entire uh, response from the, the, like we were talking about ads. So if we like about marketing. So this service gives us some response and let's say we keep only one part of this response, right? So if we're interested in how much money we spend, right? So we keep only this, we uh, transform it and we load it to our data warehouse, only this specific part, right? And if later somebody comes and says, hey, what about some other thing from you know, Google AdWords? And then you, okay, sorry, because our T was only keeping this part and we don't have the rest of the data, right? And by keeping the entire thing and then doing the transformation later, if somebody comes to us and asks for something extra, then the data is there. We just write another transformation on top of the data that we already extracted, right? Exactly. Yep. And uh, yeah, and this depending on engineering teams, uh, I'm curious, how does it help analysts to be more independent now? Why do they know, do they not depend on engineers now? Yeah, so generally analysts do operate uh, within the, or analytics teams operate within the data warehouse itself. Uh, and so I know you recently had an interview with Victorian analytics engineer. So there's this kind of rise of this role of the analytics engineer, which is a role that is generally found on the analytics team, which essentially is uh, managing the, the process from the, the pipelines to the data warehouse and building out that transformation layer. So instead of business analysts or product analysts going to the engineering team, which generally is, is kind of more focused on maybe data platform or data infrastructure, it's actually this kind of rise of this role of the analytics engineer that allows there to be autonomy within the analytics team itself. And that allows them to kind of uh, not only understand the business and the business need and impact, but also be able to make their changes very quickly. Mm -hmm. So basically now every like analysts who are not necessarily strong engineers, we have an analytic engineer who can help them if something in the if something is more complex than the usual, just writing the usual SQL query, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of these uh, transformations can honestly be be done using uh, using SQL, and that's just very ubiquitous. It's very well understood. It's very it's much very common language, and so the the act the uh, I guess the the level of access or the level of ability to, to kind of access and build your own transformations, it, it, that barrier is much lower. And so, uh, you know, even if let's say the team is so small that you don't have an analytics engineer, you're essentially empowering your analysts to essentially be much more full stack and say, hey, now that the data is in the data warehouse, all I have to do is write SQL using something like DBT. And then I can essentially uh, service any, any kind of requests or, or generate any insights autonomously. And that reduces my time to be able to kind of make uh, positive relationships with my stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also because the data is already extracted. So I guess you have uh, fewer steps to run, right? Or if it's already extracted, right? Yeah, and honestly, a big part of it is also speed. So because it's already there and because these data warehouses have really scaled out how much time it takes to really do the compute and uh, the cost of storage is also uh, way less uh, and has has reduced a ton over time. Uh, the, the, the amount of speed it takes to actually just even do these compute uh, calculations is, is much lower. And you also mentioned one thing when talking about ETL is this thing called Data Mart. And we also yeah. talked about the data warehouse. So what are those? So what is the data mart? What is the data warehouse? What is the difference between these? Yeah, absolutely. So I think of uh, data warehouses as a place almost just to, to store data marts. So when I think about data warehouses, there's an ingestion layer. And so uh, some uh, users of ours, they'll call it uh, ingestion DB. And so maybe you in within your data warehouse, you have multiple databases. And that first layer is almost like that kind of that, the rawest form that comes from Airbyte. So you hook Airbyte up to, let's say Snowflake, your data warehouse, and you have a database called ingestion DB. And that's essentially, you don't touch it, but that is where your next kind of layer comes from, which could be maybe a common layer, which is uh, something that 
maybe several teams can draw from in order to build out the data marts. So data marts are very specific to like maybe a, a use case like uh, maybe let's we, we can use marketing again in this case. Uh, you could say I'm going to build a data mart to serve uh, maybe a dashboard that I'm going to build in, in like Superset or Looker. And so that data mart specifically contains the uh, the AdWords spend, the Facebook spend, it kind of aggregates all the spend together, builds out how many leads came in from those, how many customers actually converted from those, and actually serves a marketing use case. You can, on the same level, produce marketing or produce data marts for sales or finance or product as well. But they all kind of serve a certain use case for the business. So data mart is basically a bunch of tables within a database, right? If I understood it correctly. Yeah, it's post-transformation. And, and so I think you can have a lot of different types of data tables, but the ones that I, uh, I, would, I would consider a data mart, it's kind of more of like a finalized table. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a production ready, a business user can take this and there are enough kind of guardrails in place so that they, when they do pull metrics out of it, they're sanitized, they're ready to use and, mm-hmm. and uh, the business user can trust the data that comes out of there. Mm-hmm. And this ingestion database is everything that comes before uh, data mart, right? So this is where the data that is maybe dirty or not cleaned or like that is not aggregate. This is not something that business users can use, right? Exactly. It's the rawest form. So we generally wouldn't want uh, business users to be pulling off the rawest form of the data because they'll probably have to do some transformation. That transformation might not be consistent across different users in the business. And so in order to reduce uh, potential mistakes or different interpretations of the data down the line, an analytics team will generally, that's why that transformation layer exists to kind of separate and bifurcate the ingestion from the actual business users and the data marts that they use. Okay, so Previously, like in ETL, so we would extract some data, we would immediately do the transformation on the fly without perhaps saving it, and then put it into a data warehouse or data mart. So now the data that we extract, we first put it to the ingestion layer, where we, uh, ingestion database, sorry, where we keep it, right? And then we run mm-hmm. transformation on top of this, and then we put it again to, uh, to some tables that we call a data mart, right? This, this is where the data that is uh, used by the final users, by the business users, this is where we keep it, right? Yeah, exactly. And so this, this going back to this ELT versus ETL, previously, these transformations might have been done outside the data warehouse. Now that we're bringing it into the data warehouse, that's the biggest difference here is that transform layer is, is essentially operating within the destination and then does the transformation creating new tables within the des- this exact same destination. Mm-hmm. And what is a data lake? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like a data lake is has some similarities to data warehouses, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, the, a data lake is much more unstructured. So when we think about data warehouses, they're, they're all relational tables, they all have a set schemas. Uh, and so, you can very easily pull from them using SQL. Um, and so when we think about data lakes, they're a little bit more unstructured. And I'd say they're um, the place that I've seen it be very, be very useful is when I was at Keep Trekking and we were in the IoT business. So we had a data warehouse, we had Snowflake, but the, uh, the data that we had on all of our customers wasn't always in the table format we would sometimes be collecting videos using our hardware and those were files. And those files are not things that data warehouses can store and read. That's something that really belongs in a data lake, which is a lot more unstructured and can support these different file types. Mm -hmm. So, okay, basically we just dump everything into a lake and then later figure out how to actually how to say, make it cleaner, more organized, more structured, right? Yeah, it's, it's definitely ingestion at a, a very raw level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know there's, there's certain other terms like uh, data swamp or, or things that where, you know, yeah, the downsides of that Yeah, actually, have a question about this. So what is a data swamp? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how can a leg become a swamp? 
Yeah, I think uh, when I've heard that term, it's generally because there's maybe low quality or maybe very unrefined data. I've also heard this term kind of refer to uh, places or like data lakes that have essentially become large places of just unused data. So you put so much in there and then maybe there's so little organization that's very difficult to actually be able to utilize what is in there. And maybe over time, especially as maybe new people come in, old people leave the team, it's, it becomes harder and harder to manage what is there and what is usable. And mm -hmm. so I, I think that, yeah, I've heard that term being used um, just as a generic term to kind of refer to uh, data lakes that essentially have just low quality, maybe un data that that people can't trust yeah so basically when uh, there is another buzzword data governance that i guess this is about uh, you know making sure that your data lake doesn't become a bump. i, I mean when I, you uh, <laughs> monitor like when you make sure that uh, you know the data is clean you know what kind of data is there everything is accounted uh, for then uh, like yeah so just keep it more organized i guess the data governance term also definitely applies to data warehouses. You most definitely can have, uh, like I, at one company I worked at, we had this schema called ad hoc. And of course, you know, people are gonna throw things into ad hoc whenever they want, there are no rules around it. And so part of the data governance that we did was how do we ensure that, you know, certain databases or schemas always are, it's always clear what they're used for. It's always clear how long things will stay there. Uh, because that's kind of in the, in, married into the definition of how is this useful. And of course, there's always kind of this continual uh, inspection of what is there to ensure that it is still relevant or still will be used rather than you know, just having kind of like a, almost like a trash bin that never gets emptied. You want to make sure that your data warehouse or your data lake has that uh, level of uh, quality and relevance. So maybe not a trash bin, but I am thinking about the basement, my basement, like <laughs> yeah. all the things that I don't need right now, and I don't know what to do with them. So it's like, I don't right. want to throw them out uh, away yet. So what to do with them? I'll just put it uh, them in my basement and figure out what to do with them later. So you do, you can do the same with data, right? Hmm. Do I need to track yeah. this data? Maybe I do. Let's track it. Right? Let's keep this data. And then uh, one year later, you have this, uh, huge data source that nobody uses, right? And so it becomes yeah. spam. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, and we also talked about this ingestion layer and ingestion database, and we talked about the data lake. And I'm wondering, like, to me, they look similar. Like, are they, like, first of all, are they similar and uh, are they the same or they, they, those are different things? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, and Airbyte actually came out with a, a good article on this too, and, and we, maybe we can put in the links on mm -hmm. maybe the, the difference and how they might be converging in some ways. I'd say there's still relevance for both, right? So uh, data lakes are obviously going to be more flexible. They're going to be able to support a lot of uh, a lot more different file types and structures. And so that's the thing that data warehouses uh, don't do. And so there's a kind of a purpose for both. I'd say that um, from what I've noticed that data warehouses are generally very helpful for maybe small or intermediate sized teams. And as your needs grow and become more complex, maybe your organization gets larger, you may need to move to the data lake structure to, that offers the flexibility. And uh, it might be something that you know as your, as your team organization grows, you might have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of of even having uh, adding a data lake in addition or potentially migrating fully. But a lot so, of the functionalities of the industry are, I think, allowing for the flexibility to choose between a data lake and a data warehouse. Mm -hmm. So basically ingestion database is a part of a data warehouse, right? So maybe this is one of the tables in, uh, in a data warehouse. Let's say if we talk about Snowflake, this can be one of the tables there already in a Snowflake. It's just that the end users, the business users, or analysts, they don't use this particular table, right? But it's still a part of the warehouse. Uh, is it right? Or uh, yeah, so we were that? yeah we were talking about this ingestion layer, ingestion database. This is where we keep intermediate results, right? 
And yeah, and to me, Data Lake also seems to me like a place where we keep intermediate results. And uh, yeah, so I was wondering, like, first of all, like, are ingestion, these ingestion layers, are they a part of a data warehouse or not? I, I think in the analytics team framework, it generally is ingesting into a data warehouse, mm -hmm. not a data lake, because uh, they're generally dealing with different APIs, different sources, and then doing that translation layer, and of course, doing the visualization tool on top. So mm -hmm. from an analytics team perspective, I think the data warehouse is the most relevant. Uh, where it may not be as relevant is maybe for engineering teams who need uh, data lakes to power maybe parts of their application, or maybe data science teams who need to parse through lots of data that isn't necessarily in a structured format in order to do their analysis. So I think depending on your business use case and sort of like what team you're on and what is helpful for you, you, you kind of have to make that call of what are the capabilities that you really need to get your work done. And, and and essentially choose the solution from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have a question about do we need to have both a data lake and a data warehouse? And I think uh, so from what I understood, uh, the answer is yes, right? And uh, so we have the raw data in the lake, we have prepared data in a data mart in a data warehouse, right? And then if somebody like you said in your example, was data scientists, if they need to parse through raw data, they can just go ahead and, and do this, right? Yeah, I, I think you don't need to have both. Like it, we, we don't need necessarily in our business to have both. It really depends on the complexity of your business. Uh, but like from an analytics perspective, generally if, if I'm on an analytics team, I, I probably will never touch a data lake. I'll probably operate within the data warehouse. But I, I know that there are teams within the organization that might rely on more of a data-like structure instead. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah, I think it really depends on the complexity of the business mm -hmm. and what different teams need. Yeah, so I prepared the question, but I think you already answered that. So let me ask the question and maybe I can answer this and then you'll tell me if I'm uh, right sure. or not. <laughs> so the question is, let's say we have an e-commerce online shop. And we want to track some events there, so clicks. So every time user comes to our online shop and selects a product, clicks on this product, we track this event. Mm -hmm. So these events, these clicks, they end up in the data lake where we keep the, the tracks, uh, the, the clicks. And uh, I have a bunch of SQL queries to transform these clicks into something else. So aggregate, calculate some statistics. And so I have that. And then I'm a data scientist. So what I do is I run some machine learning on top of these clicks. So for example, I have a model that wants to predict for each product, how many clicks there will be, right? So I need to use this information about clicks. So I write some SQL queries, I extract these clicks and I build a model for that. And uh, yeah, or maybe instead of building a model, I just put clicks to into a dashboard and then um, the top management sees, okay, in this category, we have that many clicks. In that category, we have that many clicks, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then for orchestrating everything, so in our company at OLX, we use Airflow typically for this, for mm -hmm. all the, these uh, things. Uh, so is it, the question is, is it ETL or ELT? And I think, let me answer that and you'll correct me. I think this is ELT because first we, dump everything into a data lake, right? So we mm -hmm. don't change the, the raw events. So they we leave them be in the data lake. And then there are other jobs, other transformation jobs that take the raw data, transform, and then eventually put this in a model or in a dashboard, right? Exactly, yeah. Like you're not using a tool to do that transformation. You yourself are taking all the, the data that has been loaded into your, your area and then doing something with it. Exactly. Yeah, all this time I was, uh, I thought that Airflow is an ETL tool, but actually it's an ELT tool, right? Air, Airflow? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's very much like an orchestrator and it helps to yeah. like just schedule. But ultimately, yeah, like Airbyte has a very good integration mm-hmm. with Airflow that essentially runs your Air, Air, uh, Airbyte jobs mm-hmm. <laughs> using Airflow. And so, uh, yeah, so we also use Airflow here. I think you mentioned at the beginning what uh, Airbyte is doing. So it's uh, it's about transformation, right? So it's about ingesting and then... Uh, I don't remember so, like something putting into a data warehouse. Yeah, maybe now we uh, we try to make sense from all these buzzwords. So we know what the transformation means, right? So this is uh, take a data and change it a little bit. Then mm-hmm. ingestion is about putting something into a data warehouse, right? And then a data warehouse is basically the database that we use for all these analytical purposes. Right. So yeah, maybe you can tell us now what Airbyte is doing. Yeah. So Airbyte tackles the EL part, mm-hmm. and that's our uh, main goal: is to ensure that the EL is as seamless, reliable as uh, you know any other uh, project on market, and that you uh, you know have a great ex- like understanding and expectation of what that output in your like that data warehouse is going to be. Uh, and so we also uh, you know, integrate really well with DBT right within the product. So we're not handling the transformation per se ourselves, but we're relying on DBT as a part of our product to ensure that uh, analysts can use DBT to do those SQL transformations once the data is there. So we're, we're not uh, like a transform, transform product necessarily, but we just integrate really well uh, with that and have embedded that into our product. Uh, and so one thing I, I, I didn't actually mention earlier is that uh, Airbyte is also open source. And so, you know, we are really focused on building our, out our community, uh, enabling users, uh, people out there who are, you know, uh, excited to contribute back to our project to enable those people to actually uh, build out potentially new connectors or maybe even amend existing ones and contribute back to our project. Mm-hmm. And DBT is also open source, right? Yes, exactly. So DBT is also open source, and it's part of that kind of like modern data stack, you could say, for uh, the evolution towards more open source tools. Uh, they also have a cloud product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking about this modern uh, stack, so I've heard many times, uh, and actually we have a talk about this quite soon. It's about this modern stack for analytics, and actually the talk we have is modern data stack for analytics engineering. I don't know if there is any, uh, like if there is, if there are different uh, stacks for analytics and for analytics engineering, probably that's the same one, right? So what is that? Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, like which tools are there? And uh, yeah, so why do we even talk about this? Why it's a thing? Yeah, so why it's a thing is because essentially you are now able to choose each piece of the uh, stack individually instead of having a platform approach where one fits all, where you have a lot of vendor lock-in, you now essentially get to choose best of breed for each of the pieces of the data puzzle. So extract and load, obviously there's Airbyte. Uh, there's also incomes like Fivetran that have been around for, for quite a bit longer. From a data warehousing perspective, uh, you all you have Snowflake, uh, uh, you have Databricks, BigQuery, uh, Amazon Redshift. Uh, and then for transformation, DBT, you could also pretty, uh, pretty much outside of DBT and all the features it provides, you could just write SQL uh, and, and that would also work as well. And then from a visualization perspective, we see new tools like Superset, uh, being adopted fairly uh, uh, fairly well. And then obviously incumbents like Looker or even a Tableau. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, yeah, yes. so I, the idea of the modern data stack is that instead of having one solution that kind of tries to do it all, you're essentially picking and choosing the one that really fits what you need the best. So basically it's a bunch of tools that work really well together. Right? Yeah, and of course, can't forget Airflow, which does a lot of the orchestration. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this emerging, uh, this emerging space of reverse ETL, where you'll have tools like um, like High Touch or Census, and uh, you know even Airbyte is is thinking about going into this space as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit more about this reverse ETL, or should it be yeah. reverse ETL or reverse ELT or 
What is that? Anyways, why it's reverse? Why do we want to reverse it? Yeah, so reverse ETL is definitely something that, uh, you know, a lot of data teams are trying to already solve today using maybe custom scripts that essentially bring a lot of that analysis that maybe analytics teams do and brings that back into the operational systems that business users actually uh, need that data in. So one good example is, let's say that an analytics team uh, works on a lead scoring model. And essentially it says, I have a hundred leads. I've essentially ranked them using maybe a, a behavioral data, demographic data, and this information is now, I've ranked these leads from one to a hundred on how, what the priority is on where, who you should reach out to. But of course, traditionally that data would just live in the data warehouse and maybe in a visualization tool too. If I'm a salesperson, I need that data in the system I'm using to actually action on it. And in the past, what I've seen is data teams will use maybe a Python wrapper to essentially uh, push data back into maybe a Salesforce. And so these reverse ETL tools, they're actually enabling really low code solutions for salespeople or, or marketers to actually come and essentially just uh, kind of like point and click and say, I want to copy this table and the output of this table in this data warehouse and bring it back into my source system to be able to action on it. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be technical, it's, it's pretty low code, no code. And so that's really uh, something that's very powerful because it essentially allows analytics to be uh, really a function within the organization itself and analysts to really be very aligned with what the business needs. Mm-hmm. So basically before engineers would need to write a bunch of uh, scripts for doing this, um, the mm-hmm. systems, I assume they have their APIs that allow to push the data there, but uh, uh, I guess it's not easy to maintain the scripts and then it's also not the core right. uh, business of the companies to do that. So then right. there are some uh, tools that actually allow you to have this drag and drop experience to say, okay, this data from this table in uh, my big query on Snowflake should go in uh, my Salesforce or something else, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I would still call this reverse ETL, not ELT, because that transformation is not happening in that source where mm-hmm. you're pushing it back to. The transformation is still happening before you move it out of mm-hmm. the database. And so really it's it's essentially like a, a porting uh, of the kind of more finalized, maybe you could even call it a data mark and bringing it back into the source. So no transformation is actually happening in like the source system itself. Uh, yeah. Okay, so to make sure I understood the whole picture. Um, so we have some of these tools, I don't know, like Google Analytics maybe, or, or no, you said Google, what, what was that? Uh, AdWords, right? So mm-hmm. like all these systems like Google AdWords or Facebook Ads or whatever. So we first need to take the data from there and import, put it into our data warehouse or ingest, that's the right word, right? So we kind of import and then we do something and then we export back, right? Or, or using uh, the terminology we just uh, learned. So first we extract then do something and then we do this reverse extract, right? And then put them, put that back okay and uh, yeah so speaking of this low code no code so we all we have a question related to that okay. is the data engineering job dying with all these tools that give uh, a drag and drop experience uh, like that you can do this uh, drag and drop uh, data pipelines with all these built integrations yeah i would i would not say dying i think it is very much evolving <laughs> and so uh I think data engineering is definitely uh, like where essentially these tools are essentially allowing kind of the uh, the more uh, mundane and say parts of like a data engineer's job to disappear and allow for the data engineer to focus on uh, like for example in my team at Keytrucken our data engineer was very much focused on. Uh, a lot more uh, data infrastructure pieces. So instead of being focused on managing pipelines and waking up in the morning and, and feeling like, oh, these, these pipelines have broken and now I need to go fix that this field was deleted. It was more around tooling for the analytics team, uh, ensuring that we have proper data governance pieces in place. Uh, there are a lot of things that really are 
beyond the technical scope of even and maybe any analytics engineer or an analyst that a data engineer most definitely can essentially uh, enable the, the data team to be operating very efficiently and uh, like something like common code standards, being able to bring kind of like uh, the analytics team to a place where they can be pushing out uh, in a, almost like a continuous delivery or <laughs> uh, process, uh, ensuring that there's validation of the code, that, that pipelines aren't breaking from actually the data team and what they're producing. And so there's a lot of pieces that I think that the data engineer can now actually go and tackle that you know, the, the analytics team might not necessarily be very um, focused on, but without these things, they, they actually like can't be successful. And uh, we spoke, we talked about this uh, scripts that before reverse ETL uh, tools existed that people would write. And I imagine that maintaining these scripts was nightmare because uh, <laughs> they break in unpredictable ways, like API changes and then all your scripts are uh, not working and then having to deal all these intricacies i guess this is not fun at all like right. uh, as a data engineer uh, like a data engineer would rather probably focus on other things so i i'm not a data engineer but i don't really want to even think about maintaining these scripts uh, for talking to some third-party uh, tools like salesforce and trying to maintain that yeah, I'd rather focus on something else, right? And that's, uh, I guess, uh, this is why these tools are quite useful and people love them and uh, data engineers are still happy. Right? So yeah. Nobody is going to fire them anytime soon. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Exactly. Um, yeah, we have more questions. So um, let's say, yeah, the question is 70, from 70 to 90% of data in many organizations is collected but never is used. So who is responsible for taking care of that and for noticing that um, data engineers or like and how we actually should go about, uh, you know, noticing things like that? Yeah, uh, if I can think back to my time being uh, more of that analytics manager role, I would say it's, it's definitely a, very much a team effort. So it's hard to know what is not being used if uh, you don't have the business analysts there trying to speak to like, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the use cases that we're solving for in that business today? And then tracing that back to what is actually, if we go back to the ingestion layer, what actually is, uh, is essentially like a dependency of those use cases. And, in order to figure out, you know, what isn't being used, I remember, you know, how we would try to do this on a kind of a quarterly or monthly cleanup level, where we really try to take a critical look as a team, and it wouldn't be on a single person to really be responsible to know everything because that's impossible. But we would really rely a lot on the business analysts understanding, and I guess the analytics engineers who have them to understand kind of and backtrace back to what is actually being used. And what are things that may not be used today, but might be used in the future. And so you always want to kind of have that kind of forward looking piece too, because of course this whole idea of like ELT is that you have all that data there and maybe not, it might not be used now, but potentially if there's a use case for that in the future, someone should speak to that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it should ever be on one person. Uh, and I think that would be uh, a pretty difficult role to have if it was because that person would be missing the context of the actual business. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, the person who who doesn't miss this context, who has the uh, context would be an analytics engineer perhaps, or an analyst, right? I think it's both the analytics, uh, the, the business analyst and the analytics engineer because the business analyst might be really focused and working with the business but they might not know as much about the pipelining. And so they need to work together to ensure that they both have a mutual understanding. And then whoever is kind of in charge of managing the data governance, the, the cleanliness of the database, then that they need to communicate with them that, hey, this is data that's not currently being used uh, and then kind of execute on, on cleaning it up from there. Yeah, thank you. So another question we have is, uh, I have no idea what CDC is. Do you know what CDC is? Do you, yeah, have you heard so of this 
acronym? Yeah, so it's it's uh, change data capture, and change so data capture. okay. Yep, and so that's a feature that is available in our uh, in our um, connectors. So and some so CDC is essentially a way to be able to uh, capture only changed records, and so. Uh, change the, that's yeah that's where the acronym kind of comes from. Um, so essentially, what it allows you to do is not have to fully replicate your database every time. Instead, let's say I sync my database today. Tomorrow, only ten percent of those rows have changed. I only want to sync those ten percent, and I only want to capture and and, uh, and capture that those ten percent have changed, and then only update those ten percent in my destination. Uh, without change data capture, you might have to be doing a full replication every day. And that isn't uh, really the optimal way to manage like cloud resources because essentially you're you're consuming more resources to do that for replication. And essentially by doing CDC, you actually have the ability to reduce your own cloud costs if you're self-hosting, uh, but also it's just much faster because you're moving less data. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to think of an example. So, um... I work at Twilix and this is an online marketplace. This is a place, let's say, if you want to sell your phone, you go, you create a listing and yeah, this is like online marketplace basically. And sometimes people, users, the sellers, they can go and change the title or they can go and change the price. And I guess this CDC change data capture will allow us to see, let's say, uh, if we have 30 million listings active right now on the website right mm -hmm. we don't want to look at you know at the entire database of listings right if something changes if a price is, it changes or a title changes we just want to see that and kind of keep the delta right the difference between the old version or, or just keep only the the new thing right uh, instead of taking all the 30 million uh, records and you know keeping them over and over again right yeah, exactly. And then, but yeah, so it essentially is a performance consideration and uh, also allows you to capture like, deleted rows. So that's another another benefit as well. So yeah, I think that, uh, that we don't offer it on all of our uh, data uh, warehouse sources yet, but we are actively working on building out CDC capabilities for all the sources that essentially um, allow for that. Mm -hmm. And do you know what is the slowly changing dimensions? I've heard this thing a few times. I'm curious what this is. Yeah, I, I, I can speak to what I think it means. Uh, <laughs> so I'm also not 100% sure what it actually is, but I heard this term used uh, many times. Yeah, I'm, I think in the business, you essentially will probably start a pipeline process with maybe 10 columns that you know you need. And maybe over time, if let's say a salesperson says, oh, I'm actually gonna collect now information on whether or not they'd be interested in this new product feature we just launched. And they add a maybe a checkbox or, or like maybe a pick list in Salesforce. The slowly changing dimension to me when, when I hear that term means your dimensions may change over time as your business changes. So because now the sales team is collecting new information, you also want to ingest that new information into your data warehouse. And that will mean that your dimensions change and that you will actually want to ingest not just 10 fields, but now 11. And then maybe next week it's 12 because now they're collecting something else or there's another piece of data that's relevant to what you need. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think of when I hear that. But uh, yeah, I, I hope that answers <laughs> the question. Yeah, well, I think like the example you gave about like a new uh, product feature that a user is interested in. I guess this user is interested now in this feature, but maybe in one year, the user is no longer interested, right? And then, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I guess this is, it doesn't change quickly, it changes slowly, right? Well, I, I think when I think about dimensions, it's to me in a table structure, it's like adding mm -hmm. a new column. Okay. The value of that column, the field might change. And so that's it, kind of like capturing the, the history of the field, but ultimately you're, it's kind of uh, the way that I think about it is you're actually capturing an additional dimension of data that you weren't capturing before. And so uh, 
I don't think that that happens all at once ever in a business. A business is constantly evolving and changing, especially if you're small and you're kind of in that growth phase. You're constantly trying to think of new things to track, maybe we're launching new products or new product features. And so there's always going to be this ever-changing and growing set of dimensions that you'll want to track. And that's where that slowly changing dimensions aspect comes into place. Do you know of any examples when we still would prefer ETL over ELT? Uh, I would say there's, if there's maybe a large enterprise need for it, uh, you know, I personally can't speak to, you know, being in a major enterprise company and having kind of a need for, for this, but it might, it might be something that maybe much larger enterprises might want to adopt. And ultimately, uh, I, I think that is kind of the, the play where e- ETL has really been successful is in these large enterprises where you're potentially kind of combining multiple data warehouses or data sources and pr- bring them together and then maybe pushing them out to multiple data warehouses or lakes. And so maybe if, if there's a need for this kind of intermediary place, maybe a staging area essentially where you need to ingest from a lot and then you need to propagate out a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I worked at an enterprise and we had all these tools like Oracle, Informatica and all this. Uh, so I am pretty sure if I come back now and see what they use, it's still Oracle, Informatica. and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it- been working for them pretty well. So I remember like it was uh, the bank where I worked. Uh, uh, we were processing a lot of data there. So yeah. yeah. So if, if there's a certain use case for it, I, I think that that's, yeah, the place that I could see really a use case for that kind of staging area and that really complex model is that intermediary is essentially allowing you to message things from many places to one and then from one to many again. and. I think smaller companies don't generally have that need as strongly, but much more complex organizations might be using a different warehouse for every business unit or a different, a different data lake to service different teams. And so that might be something that where they need some sort of intermediary solution. Thank you. So, and uh, yeah, the last question I prepared for you was about, um, so we talked about open source, so that Airbyte is open yeah. source, and we also talked about DBT being open source. So why, um, do you know why Airbyte is open source? So why why to make it open source? Aren't you afraid that somebody comes and just steals your code? Yeah, so on your first question of why open source, uh, I really think that this is kind of a way forward for the, this this space. So when you look at incumbents in a place like maybe a five train, they're never going to be able to support the long tail of connectors that really exists out there. This explosion of tools that we're seeing in pretty much every space means that every tool has an API. They are all housing date your business data that and all of that data is really relevant. But this kind of long tail of connectors that may not be like the NetSuite or the, the like AdWords, like these really popular ones, but maybe less popular ones that, you know, people are still using and experimenting with and trying and, and, um, and growing with, those need to be supported too. And right now what we're dealing with, what we're seeing in this space, and this is how like, like Airbyte actually came to be is we, um, our founders did a bunch of interviews. What they heard was, yeah, we're using Fivetran or Stitch, but, we're still writing our own pipelines. We're still building things kind of on the side. We're still ma- managing this, these number of scripts that essentially tackle that long tail because the business does still need that data. And that's not the future that we see. We want our community and uh, like us to enable that community to really be able to support you know, the actual uh, like uh, many connectors that, that should exist out there. And we don't see something like a closed source project uh, being able to support that. And so being a open source enables us to essentially bring uh, kind of like make, make like work of many hands, <laughs> you could say, is when people contribute, we uh, accelerate at such a higher velocity 
that that we can actually become the the standard for data integration. Mm-hmm. So basically, let's Here. say if I use um, some proprietary tool, and I use this tool uh, that uh, this proprietary tool doesn't support. I don't know. There is some very unpopular system that for some reasons we use at work, right? And we need to be able to extract yep. data from there, right? And uh, if I use something like Pythron, for example, you mentioned or Stitch, right? Um, mm-hmm. So they can say, yeah, we will consider implementing this, uh, well, I don't know, in five years or never. Right. Yeah. And uh, But if you use an open source tool that a developer can actually just go ahead and implement and then plug this thing in an existing infrastructure and it just works, right? That's the main idea. And we do see uh, a lot of people actually plugging in their custom connectors. We essentially have a a place in the UI where you say, just add a new source. Uh, We have a CDK, the connector development kit to essentially enable people to build things themselves. Uh, And it's very flexible. People can bring in, uh, they can essentially fork our project and essentially, bring in custom connectors that they that, that they have maybe custom business logic or think that they, they want to ingrain into their connector and they use Airbyte that way. Um, to your second question though, I think um, you, you know we are uh, open source and we always want to essentially enable our long tail connectors to be available to anyone to use. So we wanna make it super easy for a small or medium sized team to just kind of get that basic functionality of being able to be supported by connectors uh, anytime. And, and so we'll always have you know, our connectors be open source where we are coming to the market with a cloud offering is more that enterprise set of features like SSO, uh, certain things around security, like uh, role-based action, uh, uh, sorry, RBAC, so role-based access control um, and other features that generally larger enterprise teams will want, but for a small team or a small develop, like a, a developer, uh, single developer, they don't really have a need for necessarily these, but they just want to get up and running very quickly with connectors and moving data. And that's the part that will always uh, you know, be a part of our, our mission and goal. Yeah, have you heard about this story of, uh, about Elasticsearch and AWS? Uh, I think everyone who is, uh, whose model is open sourcing their code probably heard about this story. That for those who don't know, it's basically so Elasticsearch had their own, have their own cloud offering, right? So if you don't want to maintain your own um, cluster of Elasticsearch servers, so you just go to Elasticsearch and you uh, use a managed solution, right? And then one day AWS decided that they also provide a managed solution of Elasticsearch. And now Elasticsearch uh, has a problem, right? Because AWS just took their code and uh, deployed it. So now uh, people would go to AWS, for example, instead of going to Elasticsearch for a managed solution. So are are you not afraid that something like this can happen and um, somebody will... Uh, basically do the same thing and because you're open source and they can actually just do this yeah i mean it's it's uh it's definitely something that that we think very carefully about and so you know the, the things that we we talk about internally is you know are we under the right license like do, are these uh, are these we're currently under mit like, is this the right license for us moving forward especially as we launch cloud and so these are definitely things that that we consider very carefully uh, but yeah, I think uh, probably more to come soon in the, in the coming months on that, on whether, you know, like we have to make any changes or not, but that's definitely something that we, we actively discuss internally. Yeah, I guess uh, like many open source companies uh, start to think about this because uh, like this story of AWS and Elasticsearch, like it keeps, uh, you know, new things keep appearing and now all of a sudden Elasticsearch are the best people. Right, because they are starting to hide things, uh, they're starting to close source something, right? And yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how it ends, and I hope that Elasticsearch figures it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have any last words before we finish? Uh, it was, it's a, such a pleasure to, to be on this. I, I love talking about <laughs> these uh, acronyms, and I hope it, it helped uh, some of your, your listeners get more clarity. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody uh, check us out. Uh, we are also hiring on a lot of different fronts 
not just on the engineering front, but also within the go-to-market side as well. So check us out. Our entire handbook is listed on our company uh, docs page of Very Public. And uh, if you want to contribute back or, you know, try us out, you definitely can do that very easily. Um, all information is on our website. Mm-hmm. Thank you. How can people find you if they have a question? Yeah, um, primarily just on LinkedIn. So I think it's LinkedIn in slash Natalie Kwong. And uh, that is the best place to find me. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks for um, telling us about all these acronyms. So now I can make sense of them and hopefully everyone else as well. And thanks everyone for joining us and for asking questions and for watching us. And uh, I guess that's all for today. Have a great uh, rest of your day and uh, a nice weekend. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Bye.